Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow, what can I say? Michael Bungay Stanier, what a stud. What a great interview. Learn all about him. This guy's a Rhodes Scholar, has written some amazing books. We're talking about his new book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, really around how to build better relationships. And a great, great interview. One of the more fun interviews I can remember. And uh, super excited about his book. So stay tuned. Hope you enjoy this episode. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. And boy, do we have a special guest, my man. Michael Bungay Stanier's in the house. What's up, Michael? <laughs> How you doing, Darius? Thanks for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. You, you're the one person who has a more complicated surname than I do. So we're we're kind of brothers from another mother already. Man, you know when you got the badass uh, surnames like ourselves, it just means we're that much <laughs> more bad- possible. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 when that's when the real juice happens. <laughs> that's right. Man, welcome yeah. to the greatest man. I'm pumped to have you on the show. Um, do you mind if I do a little me bit too. of housekeeping and then we'll get rocking here? Please do. So, yeah, your place is a disaster. Tidy it up. Oh, man. Come on, you, get it you, together. If you only knew what was in front, if they had a, a camera behind me, it would not look <laughs> exactly. like that. It would look like shit. <laughs> it looks good. I'm sad. For those that can't see it, Darius has a, a pink unicorn hanging over his left shoulder. It's his spirit animal, and it's a, it's a fantastic set. That's right, baby. Um, so for listeners who are new to the show, Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions, and those are creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And my man, Michael, is neither short of passion nor greatness. So um, I got a text. Let me just say this. Michael doesn't know this. Um, I get hit up, I don't know, I don't know, at least five times a day for people that want to be on. The show actually is like when you work your ass off at something, sometimes people start giving us a crap about it. And so so we've been doing the show now for almost three years. It'll be three years next month. And um, and so I think we've interviewed a couple hundred people and people started paying attention. So, we, so we're starting to get some some good traction on the show. So now we're like a known entity. We're actually like getting yeah. hit up. Like we got hit up by Moby last week. Moby's going to be on the show, which Whoa. is kind of, kind of cool. That's so cool. Yeah, I was like, I was like, you know what's funny? There's a girl, Dr. Gabriel, um, I can't remember her last name. I've been hitting her up to be on the show. She's like not responding to me. And then her publicist hit us up. And I was like, I I'm like, why don't you tell Dr. Gabriel to return my text? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, how, that's when you know you've made it. When the person who's so big doesn't respond that their publicist is hitting you up and not yeah. knowing that they're not responding. 
Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, well, yeah, man, we, 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 it's, it's kind of hard to get on the show now, but, but R- Bob Glazer's a buddy. He's been on the show a couple of times. Um, and he knows what, what the format of the show is. And he's like, Hey man, you got to get Michael on the show. He's got a new book coming out. I think he'd be great for the show. And, and I take, uh, I, I really respect Bob. So I was like, Oh hell yeah, man. If you, if, if you give him the thumbs up, it's all good for me, man. So I was telling Michael before the show started, you know, that's my introduction to Michael. Like we've never met each other before. I've never, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in my world. He's in his world. And then Seth Godin, who we just interviewed on the show a couple weeks ago, I'm reading his new book, Song of Significance. And this is how I believe there's a God because like things like, like I've never like until like Michael's came into my world through Bob, I'm reading Seth's book. Boom. Seth quotes Michael in his book. And I was like, Oh, it's meant to be. He's going to be on the show. In a couple months. <laughs> so man, dude, I'm pumped to have you here, my brother. It's good. Good to get to spend well, some time you. with you. I'm glad the I'm glad the planets align and Bob and Seth gave you a little nudge because I'm so happy to be here. The consciousness is among us. <laughs> mm. So, um, do you mind if I I'm going to read your your formal bio and then I'd love to you know hear a little bit about your origin story? Does that work for you? Sure, awesome. Yeah, that works well. Uh, so, Michael B- Bungay Stanier helps people know they're awesome and that they're doing great work. He's best known for the coaching habit the best-selling coaching book of the century and recognized as a classic. He most, his most recent book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, shows how to build the, possible, the best possible relationship with the key people at work. Michael was a Rhodes Scholar. He's Australian and lives in Toronto, Canada. And you can learn more going to mbs.work. So we'll be talking about that later. But man, Rhodes Scholar, you're a smart dude. That's awesome. <laughs> how do you become a Rhodes Scholar? I got lucky. You have to apply? Is that, is that how it works? You do. So uh, this is how I became a Rhodes Scholar. My dad, I grew up in Australia. I was born in Australia, but my dad is English. He was one of the, uh, they call them a 10-pound poms because they, you know, cost them 10 quid. They get in a boat, they'd sail to Australia, and they were kind of welcomed into the Australian workforce, and my dad took advantage of that. Came over, met my mum, fell in love. I was their first son, and, uh, and I admire my dad. He's a great guy. And when I was 14 at high school, a teacher said, hey, Michael, kind of what do you want to be when you grow up? What what are you going to do when you finish high school? And I had no idea, but I said, I'm going to go to Oxford University because my dad had gone to Oxford University because he grew up in Oxford. That was his hometown. And the teacher, Peter Lennox, said, well, Michael, you'll have to be a Rhodes Scholar. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but sure, okay, whatever. (laughs) But that seed got planted as a 14-year-old. So I went to high school, finished high school, spent a year overseas, traveling around, visiting England, actually, visiting Oxford, and then uh, went to university in Canberra, my hometown, the Australian National University. And I, I just got this thought around what it means to be a Rhodes Scholar. So in, my, in one of my years, I applied. And I was pretty excited because I went and said, how do you do this? And I went, well, you, you send in your letters of application and the proof that you're kind of good and smart and whatever you can, the best you can be. And everybody gets a first interview, and then we get a shortlist, and then the shortlist gets an interview, then we pick one. I was like, great. So I sent all my stuff in, and I got a letter back going, we're not going to interview you, <laughs> which was crushing because the woman had literally said, we interview everyone. <laughs> so I was like, I must, I must be bad. I must be so at the bottom of this list. But I, had, I went away and licked my wounds for a year or two and then reapplied, this time a little more focused, a little more intentionally, and uh, I got I got um, a first interview and that went well enough. And then I got a final interview. And it was very exciting. And I walked in. It's intimidating because I walk into a room and it's like this big oak paneled room and there's like fifteen you know impressive people who are there to interview me. 
And the first question was, Michael, you've done a, 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 an arts degree in literature. You've done a law degree. But now you're applying to do a political degree at Oxford. What's your problem? Can't you make up your mind? And I accidentally made a joke. I went, well, yes and no. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And I went, oh, that, that, that was a good joke, an accidental good joke. So I laughed. Everybody relaxed. I relaxed. I had a really good interview. And I won the Rhodes Scholarship. And that means going over to Oxford to study. And it did two brilliant things, Darius. It stopped me becoming a lawyer because I just had got a law degree. But that had been going really badly. I literally finished law school being sued by one of my professors for defamation. So really, it was not going well. Um, And I met my wife. And this was uh, 31 years ago. And so we're still married. And uh, um, life is good because of that. So is your wife a a little taste? A Rhodes Scholar as well? She's not. Oh, but weak. Weak she's, sauce. She, she, uh, <laughs> well, she's got her own brilliant origin story. She's a high school dropout. And she dropped out of high school, went back in her 20s, ended up doing a PhD at Oxford in her mid-30s. So in some ways, her story is more impressive than mine. And she happened to live in a house with two other Rhodes Scholars in, in our year. So I, was, I had no friends at Oxford. So I was hanging out with these two other people I just met. And then I met Marcella and boom, it all went from there. That's amazing, man. So, so you're, you you guys got kids? You and your wife? We well, no, we're happily child free. Oh. We, we've read all the we've read all the statistics, and I'm like, you know, other people they're much going to be much better parents than we are. So, if you got kids, Darius, I salute you. You're doing a good job. Carry on. Yeah. Any pets? Any pets? Or are you pet free? We do too? have pets. Uh, uh, no, no, no. We have pets. Well, dogs, cats. We've got a couple of cats. We got a couple of cats. In fact, we we we've had cats in the past, and they've come and gone. Um, but we've got two brand new cats. One is called um, Sydney Nolan, named after a famous Australian painter. And the other one is called Maud Lewis, named after a famous Canadian uh, painter. And they were feral cats. They got rescued. Um, and so we're, we're in the process of trying to de-feralize them and reintroduce them to a home. So we're seeing how that goes. They, they better love My wife loves cats. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I said they better level up because their parents went to Oxford. Um. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've had that. I've had that conversation with them. I'm like, come on, cats. I'm I'm expecting great things from you. You, you guys, listen. I, I'm. I don't want to hear about the catnip. I don't want to hear about the mouse. <laughs> exactly. I, all I want is exactly. brilliance from bo- the both of you. None of this feral bullshit. Um, <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter and Gamble, Ben and Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through, but then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. 
You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you. They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. I'm a, I'm 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 a doc, I'm a, a allergic. I was like adopted. I'm allergic to uh, cats, but I have, I have two kids. So you named your your cats after painters. I named my sons after poets. So oh, my, my son, my oldest son's name is Rumi, like the poet Rumi. Oh, yeah, and my, my young, yeah. youngest son is named Pablo after Pablo Neruda. So, oh, so fantastic. Come. I have um, I've stayed I've stayed in the house next to Pablo Neruda's house in uh, Chile. No way. Because uh, I wrote a, I, for my master's degree in uh, Oxford, I wrote on Isabel Allende, a Chilean uh, writer. Nice. And I just happened to stay with a friend of a friend, and he's like, this is Neruda's house. So I know Neruda's poetry really well. That's brilliant. Pretty cool, man. Um, so, so um, sorry, I, I, I like to derail conversation all the time, especially when I hear inter- <laughs> interesting stuff. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah, so you, you're at Oxford, you meet your wife, and it um, sounds like you're studying literature. Is that correct? I did. I did a master's degree in literature. She was doing a PhD in literature. Yep. And, you know, when I finished Oxford, I had I still had no idea <laughs> what I wanted to do when I grew up. You know, I'm like now 25 or 26 or something. Um, and I stumbled onto this company, which was an innovation company. And I didn't even know what that meant. Nobody did. I kept asking around. Everybody's like, I don't know. what What is that? But now I can tell you, they basically, they invent products and services hmm. for other companies. It was... So this is mid-90s, so before innovation had really become a thing and more of a kind of conversation. And it was brilliant for me because they liked my weirdness. So at that stage, I had long hair, earrings. I made my own clothes. So they're like, you're smart and you're a bit weird. (laughs) We're going to hire you. So I spent five or six years running focus groups, talking to consumers, going trying to figure out what they wanted 
but weren't able to tell us that what they wanted. And then I would go and I would invent stuff. I'd invent prototypes of different things. I played a very small role in stuffed crust pizza for Pizza Hut. Wow. I helped invent a single malt whiskey. You know, back in the 90s, whiskey was only drunk by kind of old grumpy men. So they were trying to make it cool and hip for young people. So I helped invent a, a single malt whiskey which subsequently has been called the worst single malt whiskey ever invented. <laughs> no, no, you didn't win any gold medals or silver medals. For no that? gold medals. No, no. It's called Lock Do. So it's, it was a black whiskey, which looked cool but tasted disgusting. Oh. So, so it was, I had this moment, Darius, where I'm like, you know, I actually want to have a life where I have impact and I do good things. And if my two highlights of my career so far are stuffed crust pizza and an undrinkable whiskey. I've got to do something differently. So I left that company, moved into the world of change management, in part because my experience in that other company is we'd have all these good ideas and they would tend, they would go into that company and die. And I was like, why, why don't these ideas get picked up? Why? So I went and learned about change management. That consultancy took me from London to Boston where I helped set up an, an office there. That kind of went down in flames about three years later. So my wife and I, living in Boston, went to our favorite pub, had a few beers, and then we each wrote down the name of three cities that we'd like to move to on the back of a beer coaster. On the count of three, we flipped them over. Toronto made both the beer coasters, even though I'd never been to Toronto. So we booked tickets to fly up to Toronto. I got a job up there, but our flight out of Boston was on 9-11. So... Not only did that cause, you know, short-term chaos with the travel, it meant that my job that I'd lined up disappeared as well. So shortly after that, I started my first company, um, and that became Box of Crayons, which is a, a learning and training development company that teaches some of the key tools around coaching and being more coach-like to big companies. So um, when you, how old were you when you started that company? I was uh, mid-30s. It's 21 years old. So yeah, early, early thirties, 33 or 34. And so, um, so when you started it, it was really kind of out of the, you know, solving this problem of seeing the, the, the black whiskeys of the world, not, not, not take off the way that they should. Is, is that essentially it? No, it, 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 it was solving the problem that I was unemployed and I couldn't figure out how to get another job. So I'm like, I need some, you know, the first two years of Boxer Crayons, my business plan was find somebody with a wallet and a pulse and see what <laughs> I could do. Because I, you know, I had a I had a random selection of stuff. I knew about strategy. I knew about innovation. I knew about market research. I knew about change management. So I could be a kind of jobbing consultant, facilitator, teacher. I could do a you know I knew a little bit about a lot, but kind of a, in the fourth or fifth year, somebody asked me to design a, a coaching program for their firm. And that's when I was like, you know, A, I think the way coaching is taught to managers and leaders and organizations is done really badly. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I've got an opinion about how to do it differently, a, a point of difference in the market. And thirdly, there's a, there is a market. I can actually sell this. And so that became Box of Crayons getting real focus, which is like, you know what, we've got that. And then in 2016, I published this book, The Coaching Habit, which has gone on to sell, you know, some millions of copies. Um, and that's the kind of the engine and the IP that helps that company thrive. When, so, so let's talk a little bit about that book. Cause having sold a book, I mean, I, 
writing a book, first of all, publishing a book is hard just by itself. There, there's, it's like <laughs> it the percentage of people, if you ask, I think it's like in the 90 percentile, it's like when you ask people if they want to write a book, there's, there's this really high percentile of people that want to, oh, I, I, I should write a book on that. Right. And then the percentage <laughs> yeah. of people that actually do it, it's like minuscule. I, I did a, a coaching, like a, a book writing cohort where it was like me and mm-hmm. 19 other people in a group. And, and yeah. I, that my book just poured out of me. Like I wrote my book, like, and I think I, I wrote the first page like April 8th and I had my rough draft done by June 25th. Right. And wow, I had, and I had fast. a final yeah. draft done September 25th. And, and I that's was, fast. and, and I, I think one other person in my group finished their book and these are all people that paid yeah. money, like a lot of money right. to like join a group of people to help them write a book. So, so writing a book's hard, number one. And, and I was, I'm doing that to set you up to sound like a badass cause you are, um, and then, and like, I think I sold 5,000 copies of my book, which is really hard. Yeah. That's even really hard, right? Maybe I'm 10,000 really now. You're at millions. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, a, a, a luck. <laughs> Good luck <laughs> is part of it. Not just, not just luck, but, but, but some luck. So I'll tell you, because um, the statistics of being successful with a book are really grim. Yeah, like, like nothing. Um, yeah, like 95% of books sell less than 5,000 copies, which is for publishers considered break-even. Um, less than 0.1% of books sell more than 100,000 copies. So it's really hard to sell books. So if, you're, if you've found writing a book difficult, and it can be, selling a book is, <laughs> is even harder. Way harder. It's like part of the misery. And with The Coaching Habit, it wasn't my first book. I'd written three or four books before then. And I went back to the New York publisher who had published another book of mine called Do More Great Work. And it had actually done pretty well. It sold 80,000 copies. So I was like, that's a solid B-list book. And I pitched them this idea and they're like, okay. And I went away and wrote it. And they went, "Mm, no, we don't like that book. And I was like, okay. So I went away and wrote another version of it. And they turned that down as well. And And they did this six times. So finally... So I was like, this is breaking my heart because I kept going, oh, we like you, we like the idea, but we don't like this book, so take another shot at it. So I kind of lost myself and lost my way for a bit. And then I just sat down and I went, what am I doing? And I got really clear on what I thought this book should be. And I went back to them and, I was, and now I'm going to call their bluff. I'm like, this is it. <laughs> this is my final offer. This is the book. Is it a, it's a yes or a no. I'm, I'm not going to go back and have try and guess what book you're looking for. And I was certain that they were going to say yes, Darius, because I'm like, you know, I'd written a good book. I had people who follow me on LinkedIn and wherever else, you know, I had a track record and they said, no, (laughs) I was like, I was stunned. I, I honestly was not expecting that at all. So again, went away and licked my wounds for a bit and then made a really good decision. I decided I was going to self publish this book. But I was going to do it in a way that felt like a professional because there's a way of self-publishing where you can just, you know, get a PDF and upload it to the Amazon machine and they'll turn it into a a Kindle book for you. But I was like, no, I want something more than that. So I hired an editor and I hired a copy editor and I found a designer and then I found a kind of partner around distribution. And so I I self-published a book with this determination that it would it would be indistinguishable from a you know, professionally published book. Yep. Um, and so to answer your question, you know, how has this sold so many copies? Well, one reason is it answers a need, which is that it unweirds coaching. 
So it's it, kind of the, the, the solution and the problem is in the title, the coaching habit. So it makes coaching practical and useful and everyday for people who may not think of themselves as coaches, but they know they have to use coaching as how they lead and how they manage. Secondly, I'd written it so many times that it was the leanest, clearest version of this book that it could be. Because I just squeezed all the fat out of it, all the moisture. It was like the shortest book I could write that was still full of useful stuff. Killing your baby. Thirdly, that's what they call it. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. So I just like I I just done it so many times. I kind of got all the excess out of it. Thirdly, I set myself the goal for it to be a classic. I wanted it to be a classic in the field, and I said for that to happen, I need to market it for a year, not just for the launch but I need to be actively engaged in getting this book and the word out for a year. So I gave myself a year of appearing on podcasts and writing articles and doing all the things you do to try and make people notice your book. And then fourthly, I just got lucky because I've written three or four books since then and they've sold well. They've sold, you know, I don't know, some, some one, one sold more than a hundred thousand copies and others have sold some tens of thousands of copies. So that's pretty good, but none of them have had the rocket ship of the coaching habit. So it's just a right book, right time, word of mouth, the the magic wheel starts spinning, the algorithm rewards success. So the more successful you are, the more successful you are. And it's just kind of, it's got free of the gravity that pulls everything else down. And the greatest part of it all is that uh, you don't have to uh, pay anything to a publisher because you, you own the well, book. That's right. Yeah. So, so, you know, a regular publishing publisher will give you, somewhere between 8 and 10% right. uh, royalties based on your book after you've earned back your advance. With the business model that I ended up using, which is working with a company called Page2 in Vancouver, which is a hybrid publisher, you pay money up front. You pay um, to them to produce your book, but the royalties are more in the kind of 30 to 40% range. So, you know, that is a that was a decision that has literally earned me some millions of dollars more because of the way the business deal was set up. That's amazing, man. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Workman Publisher, for turning me down seven times because that was a great blessing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. High, High five. You, you just put way <laughs> yeah. more money in my pocket. I'm so happy. Exactly. I was so pissed back then. <laughs> I know. Exactly. You got it. Yeah, that's the higher power at work, like just showing you that like, yeah. like it's funny, man. Like curveballs, like they, they, they sometimes like things happen for you that you just don't even know, you know? So that's, yeah. that's well, funny. we're talking about Seth, Seth Godin. Um, and you know, his new book is terrific, but one of the books I have on my shelves, which was one of his older classics is called the dip. And it's about how do you know when to keep going and how do you know when to give up? And for the most part, he's like, mostly we give up a bit too soon. Right. Sometimes we stick at it too long. And, you know, that's kind of one of the influences for me going, man, I've been rejected seven times by a fancy New York publisher who actually has, who I have a track record with. You know, do I bet on myself or do I not bet on myself? And, you know, I've bet on myself in other ways since then, and not all of those have worked out. But there is something to say, you know, sometimes it's worth taking the plunge. Yeah, that's great, man. So what, what um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the new book. Um, mm. Obviously, you've, you've put in the, the, the reps, you know, how many books have you written prior to this? <sighs> what, this is your what, seventh book? 
Oh, I think it might be my ninth. I've slightly lost track. Yeah, who's, who's counting? Who's right? counting? Right? <laughs> I know. So, so, so you've been you've been out there. You're doing the coaching. I have yeah. a lot of questions about coaching, by the way. But, but, but I do want yeah. to honor the book, and then I'll come back to my coaching questions. So, you've written a bunch of books. You got uh, what was the? What, let's talk about the new book. Like, tell me, like, what was yeah. the kind of the the impetus to put the book out? What what what's gotten you mm. motivated to do this? And uh, yeah, tell us why you decided to write the book I and will. more about the book. Yeah, so the, the book is called How to Work with Almost Anyone, Five Questions for Building the Best Possible Relationships. And the big idea behind it is our happiness and our success depend so much on our working relationships. But most of the time, we just cross our fingers and we hope for the best. <laughs> you know, like, you know, whether you're my boss or whether you're my team or whether you're a, a client or a customer or a vendor or a key collaborator, mostly we're like, Okay, let's see how it goes. <laughs> and, and you just kind of hope that it's going to be great. And I say, look, what if you could build the best possible relationship with those key working relationships, relationships that are safe and vital and repairable? I want it to be safe that you feel good about how you show up. I want it to be vital, meaning you're brave and courageous and you have that psychological bravery. And I want it to be, to be repairable so you know how to fix it when things go wrong because things always go wrong. So that's the big idea behind it. How did I choose this book to write? Well, when I get to the end of one book and I'm trying to become a writer, meaning not just that I have books, but I'm trying to make writing the central thing that I do in this world. I'm like, of all the books I've got ideas for, because I've got a few, what's my best guess at the next best, most useful book that I can write? And I looked at some of the options I had and I and I chose a different book. <laughs> I chose a book I wanted to write on change. And I started to write it. And I started to write this book instead. So I'm like, okay, you know, you're talking about the higher powers. I was nudged to say this is the next best book. And it fits really well with the, the coaching books as well, because both the coaching book and this book is about how do you work with people? How do you bring out the best in each other? How do you do work that matters and have impact in the world? And so when when you were like writing the book, um, what was your approach on it? Like uh, kind of give us an overview. If you're a person, obviously it, it sounds like you've spent a lot of time in the coaching world. Is this written with the idea of being a yeah. coach or is this written with the idea of an executive in mind? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm broadly trying to write for people who interact with other human beings. So, you know, I have a, I have a fairly wide audience, but if I'm being really specific about it, the person I'm normally trying to write for is a mid-level manager in an organization. They quite like their work. They quite like their team and they're, and they're stuck a little bit. They're like, how do I do this better? How do I deepen my strength, uh, deepen the impact that I'm having and find my more joy in the work that I'm doing? And my goal with lots of my books is to try and unweird stuff that people kind of know about. So the coaching habit, and there's a sister book to that called The Advice Trap, that's about unweirding coaching. So a regular person can go, oh, well, that's what HR or whoever has been banging on about. If that's coaching, I could probably do that. And when I say to people, look, your working relationships are such a big influence on your success and happiness, everybody goes, yeah work gets done through other people. But nobody's ever taught them the practicalities of how to build psychological safety, how to build more resilient working relationships. So all of my books are very much designed around the practicalities of actually getting stuff done. 
So in this book, at the heart of it is this idea you want to have a keystone conversation, a conversation about how you work together rather than what you're working on. So I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm, a, I'm monologuing a bit here, Darius, so <laughs> shut me up if you if No, you need no, to. no, I, I love this, please. But one of the things uh, we didn't do, but we could have done before we kind of hit record on this, is I could have said, Darius, before we jump into the, the work, the conversation we're having, talk to me about what makes a really great guest on your show. Tell me about what the guests that you love, the ones that shine, the one that your audience loves. Tell me what's the, the, the best way that I can be to serve you. And then I might say, and Darius, let me tell you about the interviewers I really love. They've um, got a good sense of themselves. They're not just reading a list of prepared questions. They're willing to kind of go with the flow. They're, they want to hear my stories. They kind of have a laugh when I'm trying to make a joke. Those are the interviewers that I really love. And it's kind of a negotiation about how will we be best for each other right. before we jump into the interview. And we didn't do that. And we got lucky because actually I love your interviewing style. And so far you look like you're enjoying my interviewee style. Yeah. Maybe you're faking it. I can't tell. Um, but we could have set things up just to give ourselves a better chance of success. And that in a microcosm is what this book is about. The five questions that lie behind the Keystone conversation. I love that, man. I, I do think we got a little lucky here. You're just a good interviewer, and and I feel like I, I have a good. Uh, in, I'm, I I, intu I intuitively can read people, so for me, it's like, oh, yeah. and I like, and I'm dude, I'm super curious, right? So we got lucky on that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if you're a listener, you're gonna love the rest of the show. I don't even know what it's gonna be about, but it, it'll be good. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so go to let's talk about the five keystone questions. Obviously, people need to read yeah. the book to to learn about them. But do you mind going yeah. over those with us? No, that sounds great. So. The key, the key thing to take away from this, I'm going to, I'll give you the five questions, but you don't have to ask them all. You don't have to follow them in a particular order. You can, but you don't have to, because the real takeaway from this conversation is talk about how should we work together before you jump into the work. Or even if you're, you're halfway through, you're like, it's going well so far, but let's have another conversation about how we can do this even better. But here's the questions that I suggest. The first one is called the amplify question. Because it's all about identifying and speaking to the best of you. So that's the question. What's your best? So I didn't want to say, what are you good at? Because that's not always useful data. I didn't want to say, what are your strengths? Because even though I can, you know, I've seen strength finder and the five words that people get, I'm like, I don't know how to use that. Um, I want to understand when you shine and when you flow. So flow is that internal state, you know, that, Hungarian psychologist Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi talks about the yep. flow state where time speeds up and slows down and you're in the zone and it's the right balance between stuff you can do and stuff that stretches you a little bit. What's that look like? Tell me about you in the flow state. And the shine is the external view, which is like, you know, when people light up when they're doing the thing that they're, they're meant to do, they're like, this is it. So tell me those moments where you really shine, where you really kind of uh, kind of at the top of your game. And the Keystone Conversation, people ask and answer that question. So, you know, if we and I were, you, if you and I were going to co-write a book together, I'm like, my 10th book needs to be co-authored. I want to co-author it with Darius. He, it's been long enough since he wrote his last book, so he's forgotten about the pain of writing a book. So we'll do it. And we could go, so tell me about your, your best when you are working with other people. Tell me about you when you're in your zone. Tell me about you when you're in your flow. And I would do the same for you. And we're like, great. 
We've got a real sense of the best of us. And now that I know that, I don't make it up about you. I won't project it on you. I'll actually go, I think I know what I'm trying to get Darius to, and he knows what he's trying to get me to. Then the second question is called the steady question. And the steady question is, what are your practices and preferences in terms of how you work? It's kind of like the logistics, the mechanics of actually how you get things done. Because sometimes there's real kind of misunderstanding and frustration happening just because you do things different ways. So that's everything from, you know, are you a Slack person or an email person? Are you a morning person? Um, even things like, you know, what's your name? Like, or what your pronouns are. That can be a really important and useful exchange. Like, for instance, I really don't like people calling me Mike. I've got three people in this world who call me Mike, my two brothers and my mum. That's it. Everybody else, I'm like, my name's Michael. So don't just unilaterally call me Mike. Um, and you might have something to say, you know, it's like, this is, and like my surname, Bungay Stanya. It's slightly complicated because when I got married, I took my wife's name and we combined them. But there isn't a hyphen. And it drives me nuts when people randomly add a hyphen into my surname. I'm like, there's no hyphen there. It's, it's not my hyphen. name, damn it. It's not my name, exactly. So just that conversation about the logistics of how you work, because those logistics will feel like common sense to you, but they won't necessarily be clear or common sense to other people. Isn't it the worst when you correct them and then they still fucking call you Mike? <laughs> like, like, I know, I, I'm like, come on, man. Dude, I Darius somehow becomes Darius and then I'm like, <laughs> I, I like nudge them back. I'm like, yeah, you know, everyone, you know, I'll, I'll throw a few like immediate Dariuses in there. I'll be like, you know, I'm like huh. being Darius, you know, I'll speak, of, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll throw a third person comment in. Exactly. As somebody <laughs> called Darius. Yeah. As you someone, know, quite, let me quote somebody called the same name as me, whose name is Darius. <laughs> you know, Darius yeah. the great was an amazing ruler. <laughs> Uh, of the yeah, world. Exactly. I, I love that my parents named me after Darius. Um, so, so um, yeah, and then it ends up back at Darius. I'm like, does this person have a fucking hole in their brain? Um, yeah, yeah exactly. But, you know, people want to be called their name. So I love that, the preferences. Um, it's yeah, interesting, too. I mean, especially with the pronoun thing now, because I think some people, it's been politicized, right? So, unfortunately, it so because so, it's like, hey, look, just call people by what the hell they want to be called. Who cares, right? Um, That's I how I feel about it as well. I mean, I'm old enough to go, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting to have to kind of lead with your pronouns and have people say I prefer whatever it might be. But, you know, it really matters to some people. And I'm like, how hard is it for me to call them them or they if that's the pronoun that they choose? I, str enough. I struggle with it too much. So I'm like, all right, just call people by their first name. And then, and then, and then yeah. I don't, and then I have to think about it because it, because it, it gets really like my brain's like, ah, oh, this is hard. Um, um, but, but I, but I respect it either way. People want to be seen. Right. And, and that's, yeah, people that's, want to be seen. That's, that's what this is all about. Right. So it's, it's people being seen and heard. And to your point, like, like, I think that there's a value around, I guess, acknowledging their preferences. I have a question on this though, because, because it, it, it can, as a manager, right. I got yeah. 10 different people with 10 different preferences. I mean, that's, that's it, yeah. sometimes, it, it, and, I, and I see this as a style of leadership, right? This is more of like a, you know, like collaborative style leadership. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, being a, a well-learned human being, we got autocratic leadership, authoritarian leadership, strategic yeah, leadership, exactly. and you got all sorts of leaders. So if I'm more of a older school strategic leader, 
you know, I'm not saying I got to be like Donald Trump, but, you know, be a hardcore autocrat. But let's just say I'm more of a, you know, Silicon Valley strategic leader. And I got this more collaborative style that you're suggesting. And I'm like, oh, I don't have time for that shit. Like, I want to be a better leader, but that's a lot of work. Like, how do you how do you approach that? Well, the first place I go, Darius, (laughs) is um, to Daniel Goleman's work. So Daniel Goleman popularized emotional intelligence. Uh, in about the year 2000, wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review called Leadership That Gets Results. And he actually said, look, there are six different styles of leadership. Um, They all have their place. They all have moments where that's the appropriate place or style in which to lead. And he said that most leaders use one or two or the most three of those leadership styles. The most effective leaders use all six. Right. So whatever label you want to give this, this is one of the styles of leadership that is available to you to lead. And you can choose to use it or not use it, but every choice you make has prizes and punishments. There's advantages and disadvantages, a cost and there's a reward. And you need to just weigh up and go, is this worth it or not? And what the research tells you is this collaborative style of of leadership, if that's the label you want to give it, is a really effective way of leading if you care about bringing out the best in your people, if you care about retention, if you care about culture, if you care about strategy and getting the right things done. Now, if you don't care about strategy and culture and people and keeping the good people, then you can lead any way you want. But if you do care about that, and most leaders care about some of that, you might want to think about how much of this you might choose to add to the way that you lead. Um, you know, I saw a stat the other day that said um, 70% of Gen Z people leave their first job within a year. Mm. I mean, that is devastating if you're a company who's spent all that time trying to recruit people and get them and onboard them because it takes you know six months to get somebody up to speed. And then you, all that investment walks out the door because, as the famous saying goes, people join organizations and they leave managers. Right. So are you the type of manager that people leave? (laughs) And if you are, you might want to decide what type of leadership style or styles you're choosing to deploy. Now, you ask, there's a second part to your question, Darius, which is I've got 10 different people. They've all got different practices and preferences. Right. (laughs) How much time am I going to spend trying to tailor my everything to 10 different people? Right. Well, you have a choice just because they've told you your practices and preferences doesn't mean they get what they want. Um, just like you don't always get what you want. You know, if part of the way of what we're doing here is trying to build adult to adult relationships, one definition of that is being able to ask for what you want, knowing that the answer may be no. So what is good about this is it takes implicit conflict and makes it explicit and solvable. So if you say to me, um, I'm the sort of person who, if I send an email, I expect a response within 12 minutes. And if I say to you, I, if I get an email, I work on the assumption that I've got three days to respond to an email because there's other channels which I need I, are more urgent, like Slack's more urgent and then text more urgent still. Now we understand that we've got a conflict. We might be able to figure it out. Yeah. And you might say as a boss, so if I send you an email, I need it back in 24 hours. That's That's the way I work around here. I, I look, I, uh, here's what, here's been my experience. And I've ran, you know, my biggest organization, we had a thousand employees, right? So like, like, you know, I think that people want to 
like going back to what I said before, I just think people want to be seen and heard. They don't need, they, they don't necessarily expect that you are going to 100% cater to their needs. There are some needs right. that are non-negotiables for them. Right. And, yeah. and, and they want some empathy around that stuff when it's possible. But I think it just comes down to being, Hey, I just want to make, I just want to check the box that, Hey, you heard me. And if you choose to go against <laughs> right. it, at least you have, may have a good reason for that. Right. That you, you are spot on. And what this does, and I love that you're saying this because both the coaching habit the advice trap and now how to work with almost anyone have at their heart a, are you seeing the other person? <laughs> right. Are you connecting with them on a human to human level? And just the other day, I saw the chief innovation officer of a great place to work speak. And he said, the thing that distinguishes or correlates between the companies at the very top of that list, one of the four things he mentioned was a deep listening culture. In other mm. words, a place where people felt seen and heard. Yeah. And you can, you know, my belief is, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I, as a leader, I believe that you can design for that, right? I think, look, part of it, you could design really, if I want to go really deep here, I could design my hiring process to make sure I hire people that think that way, right? I can design systems and processes around letting people be heard. And then, and then last but not least, I could design on how I train my managers to make sure that they are building those muscles. So going to that, I mean, I could speak to all four of those, but, but going to the last area, I think this is where a lot of organizations structure is a struggle, right? Because you're busy doing what I call BAU business as usual. I'm I'm running the business. I I got fires blowing up and it's like, Oh, stop. We got to do active listening practice. Right. So how do you, how do you, how do you think like when you start thinking like, great, this is good content. This makes sense. The Mm. data supports this, but hold on Darius, you got to stop what you're doing. And you got to go and make sure that you, your managers are starting to do this stuff. How does this, how does the rubber meet the road with this type of stuff? Yeah. You know, you, you, you've nailed it really in a way that most people don't get, which is to make change happen in an organization. There are different levers you have to, or different areas you have to look at and think about. So at, you need to address it at an individual behavior change level. And that is often, is it good training? There's a ton of bad training. (laughs) There's a ton of bad stuff, which is like boring, tedious, too long, too theoretical, doesn't really practice, doesn't kind of make it, doesn't collide with reality. But let's work on the assumption that you've got training that is useful, grounded in the reality of the people that are actually there, that are driven to trying to engage and use the techniques we know that will help nudge behavior change that can be a really powerful place to start. So, you know, Boxer Crayons, the training company I started, you know, we go, look, here here are the five reasons people resist coaching. I don't have time. So people go, great, our belief, and we'll train you in this, is if you can coach in 10 minutes or less. And then they go, second resistance, I still don't have time. Even if I could coach somebody in 10 minutes or less, I'm so busy. And I'm like, it's not... Coaching isn't adding to what you're currently doing. It's replacing how you currently behave. So it's not an addition to your current responsibilities. It's you doing the same stuff, but in a coach-like way. The third one is, um, uh, what is the third one? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not, I forgot my own, my own yeah, spiel. Too much the fourth one your... is. <laughs> too much shit in your brain, brain, man. I'll come back to <laughs> I'll come back to the third one. It's amazing, but I'm going to keep it secret for now. Um, Absolutely world-changing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, like, it's, it's stunning. Um, the, fourth, the fourth one is, oh, the third one is like, 
I don't want to be a coach. Right. And I'm like, great. I don't want you to be a coach either. You were hired to be a salesperson or a marketing person or an ops person or who knows. I want you to be you, but I want you to be more coach-like. So it's not a new role. It's a way of managing and leading and showing up. Then the fourth one is, I'm not even sure what coaching is. So that's one of those words that wafts around and everybody's heard of it, but nobody knows what it means. I'm like, it means, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little mm. bit more slowly? So that's the behavior change. So they know what we're going to be working on. And then the fifth one is what's in it for me. I can get why Darius wants me to be a coach or more coach like, because that's going to help the culture and help productivity. But what do I get out of it? I'm like, you get to work less hard, but have more impact in the work. So you ground it. So those are the points of resistance and the deep needs that people doing this training have. And you build a training experience that addresses those fears and those points of resistance. But the training is just one part of it. Because, you know, the classic metaphor is you, you send people away on a training. It's like taking a goldfish out of a, a tank of dirty water, cleaning the goldfish and then putting it back in the tank of dirty water. Right. Nothing changes because it gets dirty soon enough. So you have to figure out how to clean the tank. So that is when you start thinking about changing structures, changing explicit values, hiring processes. It's when you start thinking about how do we get the senior leadership team to actually change their behavior? Because if you go on a training course to be more coach-like, say, and then you come back and then your boss's boss you're still old school authoritarian. You're like, doesn't seem like that's the that's, this is the behavior that succeeds around here. I'm going to behave the way my boss's boss behaves. So there's other things to be thinking about as well. And if like you, you're running a company of a thousand people, you're like, we need to coordinate between all of these things. So we shift the expectations of the leadership team. We we tweak some of the structures, maybe some of even the physical environment, and we deliver really brilliant training. All of that's going to help shift the culture. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So, so we, I mentioned I wrote a book. My book is called The Core Value Equation, and it's mm. about how do you design values so that they can become the language of accountability in an organization. So it's a full, it's a book, a design book, essentially. Um, yeah, and my, right. and based on what you're saying, like my brain's like, well, what he's, what I just heard Michael say is, I need to make sure my values are alive and well in my organization, and then. Yep. And then that will attract the right type of people. And I got to build systems around that. Right. Like my hiring processes, all the, all the things right. that I call it scaffolding, all the scaffolding you got to build. That's it, right. It's in order to scale, but, but, but you don't really need that early on. And probably most people are listening to this. Maybe you have a hundred employees or less. I think if you've got a hundred employees or less time is limited, you got a small executive team, more than likely a couple, maybe five people, you know, they yeah. got a lot on their plate. They're wearing a lot of hats. It's not this big executive, like huge company. And my yeah. belief is, is like, I don't have to convince someone to do something if it's part of their fundamental belief structure. They just kind of do it right. organically. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I think you're laying down the gauntlet to make values real for people because most corporate values suffer death by lamination. You know, <laughs> somebody's come up, come up with these kind of slightly anodyne, slightly boring, slightly obvious values. You know, they've, printed them out, they've stuck them up on the wall, everybody's been sent a copy that they've stuck up on the wall, and then they're kind of mostly yep. ignored. Where it's like, how do I even make those real? Words on paper. And so, words on paper. Words on paper. Exactly. Yep. So 
it takes quite a lot of work to say, how do our values become embedded in the work we do and the structures we have? Because, you know, that quote from Churchill, um, uh, something like man or people, people shape buildings and thereafter buildings shape people, which is like your structures change the way that you work. Right. So if you want people to behave in a way that is accorded to your values, it has to be built into the visible and invisible structures that are around you, because that is the greatest influence on how people behave. And that is like, okay, so what if we're designing a compensation system? What how do our values speak to our compensation? Right. Right. If we're designing an org, org chart. How do we design an org chart that is in true alignment to what our values speak to? And then it becomes most interesting, Darius, I think, when you have values which are in tension with each other. Because I think the best values are in tension with each other. You know, um, for instance, one of the values we have at my new company, MBS.Works, is um, be generous whilst knowing your boundaries. Mm. And it's not just be generous, meaning just give everything away. It's like we're trying to find the tension between giving and being open-hearted as much as possible, but also keeping ourselves safe and our organizational safe in terms of not being silly about that. And it's when you're trying to find the, the, the way that these values play with each other and dance with each other, and then you bring them to the hard work of designing a comp system, for instance, that's where you actually have a chance of making your values uh, infuse the way infuse who shows up and who does the work in your in your organization. How do you uh, going to that last point using your MBS.works example? What yeah. happens? Well, yeah, I get the tension around that, but what about when there's a heritage that was built? You know, just you know, and when you're building any organization, there's there's always this heritage yeah. that isn't necessarily relevant as you yeah. become more mature or as opportunities present themselves that that are really important, but the heritage gets in the way. How do you think, mm. how do you think through that? Well, I mean, legacy systems can be brilliant and they can be a curse. And I think we typically underestimate how strong a pull the status quo has on us. It has got, it's got a it's got a heavy gravity. It keeps pulling us back. And I think what the question that people have to wrestle with when they see a new opportunity and they want to say yes to it is what do we have to say no to to make this yes a real yes? And most often people don't wrestle with that hard challenge because uh, you know this new thing comes along and they're like this is going to be great this is a great opportunity this is a, the next thing we should go for let's 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 commit but they're just adding the yes onto the onto the legacy system and it, it doesn't work most of the time right so what you're looking for is to go, what, what's the no? What, it's kind of like, how, what do I need to say no to about who I am today so I can say yes to future me? Right. And 
part of why that's hard is you're often it's like who do we need to say no to right yeah because almost always there's a what associated there's a who connected to the what you're saying always no to yeah so you're like so whose heart am i going to break um and you know i said before about choices have prizes and punishments you've got to wrestle with the prizes and punishments the disappointments the broke the fact that you are you will find people going what are you doing I trusted you and you're letting me down because you're abandoning this to go after something else. And it's actually wrestling with that kind of deeper commitment around, we've got to say no to some things that feel real and precious and important to people so that we can say a wholehearted yes to the thing that's calling us forward. I love that, man. Michael, you're so smart. Um, I'd love to go back to the book. Thank you for that. You, you don't know that that was a loaded question and I was trying to solve a problem for myself. So um, thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for the coaching. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> you're like, where the hell is this coming? Heritage stuff coming from? It's like Darius has a, has a he's got an ulterior motive. Um, <laughs> oh man, Michael's such a good coach for me. Um, so going back to the book, you know, anyone, so obviously this is a book to help people work better with their peers, yeah. with their team members, maybe even with their, the people that they sub are subordinate to, depending on how you characterize an organization. When you start yeah. thinking about like the biggest thing that folks that are going to read this book or should read this book, like what's the biggest problem or what's the biggest struggle? The person that's having X, this big problem right now, you're like, Hey, cause I, I, I'm a, you don't know this. I'm like a aggressive reader of books. I, I try to get through a book a yeah. week and, and I have friends who are like, Hey, what book should I read? And I'm like, what, 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 what problem are you trying to solve right now? Like, exactly. You, and, yeah. and, and cause I'm like, I got, I got, I mean, you just want entertainment. Like I got entertainment <laughs> books. You, you want to solve for that? Like there's, here's a list of books I like that are entertaining, but if you want to solve for yeah. like a, a real problem, here's like, yeah. depends on the problem. So, so, so someone comes to me, I read, I read the book, how to work with almost anyone. And someone comes to me, what problem are they going to say, Darius, I got X problem and I'm going to tell yeah. them your book. What's that problem? that's eating at them, that, that this is, is just like solves that problem for them. If you're hungry for working relationships that bring you more success and bring you more happiness, this book is going to help. And it's not just about making, you know, sparkly unicorn fart, wonderful working relationships. I mean, our working relationships are on a bell curve. And my belief is that every working relationship can be better. So that's the problem. So every working relationship can be better. So this is a book that if you have a, a hard working relationship, one that's a struggle, it's going to make that more bearable, more workable. It's not going to solve it. It's not going to magically make it fantastic, but it's going to, it's going to improve it. You know, John Gottman, a, a great writer on kind of traditional family marriages, relationships, says that 70% of um, the issues in a working relationship are, are set. They're not really solvable. But that means 30% is solvable, is fixable, is improvable. So it's about making the, the working relationships that are really hard, making them better. It's the ones that are really brilliant for you, it's keeping them brilliant longer. And all the ones that are in the middle that are good enough, it's about learning how to add some magic to those so they play to your strengths and bring out your best even more. I love that. So there's something about keeping your finding the best possible expression of the working relationship you have with somebody. It's keeping the best people around longer. And then it also solves problems like if you find yourself getting into contractual disputes with vendors and the like, 
having this conversation on top of the legal contracting allows you to actually figure some stuff out so it doesn't devolve into a fight but you actually get to negotiate it because one of the things that this book does is it gives you permission to keep talking about the health of the relationship so that when it gets hard you don't just default to ah it's broken we need to go to legal remedy it's hey this is broken but the fifth question is how do we fix it when things go wrong it's going wrong so how do we fix this and there's a way of inviting people back to do let's see if we can solve this working relationship i love that man so the book um you got it comes out in a couple of weeks why don't we talk a little bit about how people can get their hands on it when's it coming out and where can Perfect. they find the book and all that good stuff yeah june 27th is when it comes out um best possible relationship is the website for the book um, and I say that because if you're hearing this before June 27th, there's a bunch of pre-purchase bonuses that you get. Um, and if you're getting to it after it, you can just go there and get the downloads of the five questions. You can get, you can see a, a filmed example of a Keystone conversation, us working through all five of the questions. So there's all sorts of supplementary uh, material that you can get at bet, bestpossiblerelationship.com. And of course, it should be available in all those places where you buy your books. Awesome, man. So we'll go ahead and uh, put all that stuff in the show notes. For people that want to like learn more just to work with you and the, all the cool stuff you're doing around coaching and helping organizations, what's a good way for them to connect with you on that type of stuff? Yeah, you know, the website is a really good hub. So the overall website is mbs.works, mbs.works. And then I'm around on some social media. I don't spend a lot of time there, but at mbs underscore works for Instagram and I think we still do Twitter or that's, you know, becoming more and more problematic. Nice, man. Well, my, Michael, such a pleasure getting to hang out with you. I'm so glad Bob introduced us. I'm so excited Me for too. your book. Man, this is really Thank fun. You. And congratulations, man. Book number, whatever number it is, 9, 10, 100. <laughs> I know we lost track here, but man, big, yeah. big, a big shout out to you and, and, and the team for putting this together. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, we'll make sure this gets put out before the book for your book launch because I'm a big oh, fan that'd be amazing. of helping people during the book launches. So we'll make sure this, this goes live um, right around the 27th. But guys, the book is oh, How to Work with Almost Anyone. The man here is Michael Bungay Stanier. And um, appreciate you so much, my friend. This is awesome. Darius, it was a delight. Thank you so much. Until next time, listeners. Share this with share this with leaders, leaders were givers. We share the good work. Go buy the book. Until next time, peace out. We love you. You are listening to the Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on. So that you don't miss any of our future episodes, we have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, 
I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.